It's Tuesday, November the 9th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. That means I got a ringside seat to a great conversation featuring three decidedly wise men. That'd be the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, and the geostrategist slash hopeless optimist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. And we have a special guest for you today. Joining us via Zoom is Tyler Cowan, professor of economics at George Mason University and the Center for the Study of Public Choice. Tyler runs a terrific blog. It's called The Marginal Revolution, and he's a very talented podcaster. Podcast is called Conversations with Tyler. I recommend you subscribe to both. Tyler Cowan, welcome to Goodfellows. Thank you for having me. Hello. So Tyler, in the course of doing a little homework on you, that's what moderators get to do. We get to learn more about our guests and maybe our guests know. I discovered that among other things, you are what I would call a foodie. And I hope that's not an insult to you, but you run a blog on, of all things, ethnic food in Washington, D.C. I'm always curious about the attraction to food because I've always thought, Tyler, there's sort of two schools of thought when it comes to eating. There are people for whom food is a process, people for whom food is an experience. Are you in that letter camp? And if so, what is the attraction? Food is a way to learn about immigration to learn about history, to learn about chemistry, to learn about market competition, and most of all, to learn about Northern Virginia. So you called my dining guide, Washington DC guide. The best restaurants are in the suburbs, which are lower tax, more commercial, lower rent, more competitive, and because they have better schools have attracted more talent. So it's a way to keep in touch with what I call reality and to cut across class lines with the people you get to know talking to people in restaurants are not the usual people from the university or politics. Okay, Neil, John, HR, if you had a chance to take um, Tyler out to dinner here in the Bay Area for ethnic food, where would you take him? Oh, this one's easy. I'm going to jump in. Tyler, where are we going? (laughs) I'm paying. (laughs) We're in San Francisco. We're eating Burmese. If we're in Mountain View, we're eating South Indian. So the Bay Area is a big place. One has to be very specific and know exactly what to eat where, right? Okay, Neil. Neil, HR, what do you think? Where would you take him? Tragically, there is no Scottish restaurant so far as I'm aware, so I'm unable to invite you to sample haggis uh, and deep fried Mars bar. Uh, Of course, if you'd gone to COP26 in my native Glasgow uh, to join the other people saving the planet, you could have had both these delicacies and started the day with the full Scottish breakfast, which my father used to refer to as death on a plate. Sadly, none of these delights are even legal in California, never mind available. We could fry our own Mars bar at home. They're not big economies of scale to frying Mars bars, right? (laughs) It's true. I'm tempted to to get uh, my my wife to have a go at a deep fried Mars bar the next time we get you around for dinner. (laughs) HR, where would you take them? Hey, well, of course, I'd ask Tyler his his uh, his recommendation as well. But I, I love Tamarind, which is a great Vietnamese Asian fusion restaurant here in Palo Alto. It's my favorite place. I'm a bit of a rut there, but I also I also like these the dueling you know the dueling uh, Greek restaurants on both sides of Palo Alto, um, Aviva and Taverna. But but uh, but Tamarind's my go to spot, Tyler. I don't know if you've been there, but uh, but I, I had the good privilege of of knowing the the owners who who who. Uh, who fled Vietnam uh, after after the uh, Vietnamese communist victory, came here to the United States and and uh, and became extremely successful in the restaurant business and uh, and are just great American citizens uh, as as is, is their son uh, who I think is interested in military service. So anyway, I I agree with you. Restaurants are a great place to get to know people you otherwise would not get to know. And and uh, Tamarind is a great is a great spot here in Palo Alto. 
So when, when COVID's over, we have to have a uh, Tyler Cowen guided gastronomic tour of the uh, <laughs> peninsula. Yeah, so Tyler, you should know Good Goodfellas is a two-way street. You're not just going to get questions asked to you. I want you to ask questions. I know you've done podcasts with John and Neil in the past, so you can pick up on where you left off. You've not had the good general on your show, I think, uh, so a chance to ask him questions as well. Uh, but I would like to start this way. Let's go from food to food for thought. Neil, I apologize for the clunky segue, but hey, it worked. Uh, Tyler, I'm going to give you two topics uh, to consider or come do a topic of your own, but here are the two topics I'd like you to go after. Number one, what Neil mentioned, COP20. 26 in Glasgow. Uh, today is Tuesday the 9th. Uh, AOC, Nancy Pelosi were there talking about Build Back Better. I uh, was curious about AOC, Tyler, is that she talks about being in this for the long haul. She says she's going to be around for the next 30 years talking climate change. So it raises the question, where is this crusade headed? Or second topic, Tyler, Tim Cook in conversation today at the New York Times Dealbook Conference, where he said that he owns cryptocurrency, but Apple's not going to let you use it to buy products anytime soon. The question, the topic, Tyler, when does cryptocurrency become more mainstream as both an investment and a currency? And why do we need crypto in the first place? So take care of those, Tyler, or, or throw your own topic at us. What are we going to do on the third hour? <laughs> Let me take those in reverse order. I think crypto already is mainstream. There's a recent study from John's former University of Chicago that estimated 14% of Americans have dealt in crypto. That to me is mainstream. And a lot of the hesitancy of the regulators to move against crypto, I think, is just electoral fear, plus they don't know what they're doing when they regulate it. So I think today the total market cap of crypto hit $3 trillion for the first time ever. I don't think one can argue anymore it's a bubble. I know John and I disagree on this, and I'm going to ask him a question in a moment, and then we'll get to global warming. But the price had its chance to go pop and collapse and it has come back consistently. I believe in market prices as a kind of prediction market. And I think the best prediction from here on out is that crypto will find its uses in decentralized finance, in sending remittances more cheaply, in serving as a means of transacting in the so-called metaverse. Uh, the market's telling us some of these things will work. So John, what do you say to the current market price? <laughs> I think crypto will find its uses. Um, cheap transactions isn't one of them. Uh, anonymous transactions is clearly one of them. And I think that's the hard nut that our regulators uh, have to face, their desire to keep track of everything you buy and sell versus people's desire to transact anonymously. Some of it for all sorts of great privacy reasons, some of it for all sorts of horrible uh, illegal reasons. I'm with Tyler on this. I'm, I'm uh, a pro crypto, but we don't call it that anymore. We call it Web3. Uh, because crypto is a word that alarms people in Washington, D.C., and creates that strong impulse on the part of the administrative state to regulate something before it's properly understood. I, I wrote an update to my book, The Ascent of Money, back in 2018, uh, after there had been a big sell-off in Bitcoin. And my argument was that adoption would drive the price back up. Uh, it was a simple back-of-envelope calculation. If every millionaire in the world had something like 0.2% of his or her uh, uh, wealth in Bitcoin, the price would be 15000 And if it went up to 1%, then the price would be 75000 And we're now around 60000 So I'm feeling pretty much on track to, to being right about this. Tyler, I think it's, it's adoption of something as a quirky asset class 
uh, at the moment, rather than as money for transactions. And I think a common error is, and one hears this from mainstream economists, oh, it's not money because it's not a means of exchange and it's not a unit of account and it's not a store of value. But I'm not sure it needs to be money in any of those three respects to succeed. Right now, Bitcoin's like an option on digital gold. That was the phrase my friend Matt McLennan used when he was trying to explain it to me quite a few years ago now. And I like that term because it behaves a bit like an option. If the world is really transitioning to, to a very virtual state where the metaverse is a big part of our lives, uh, then the option's going to work and it's going to be worth a lot more than sixty or 75000 And of course, there's some scenario in which it doesn't work. And that's why I think the volatility is there. You're really taking some kind of bet on the future state of, uh, of the economy and the scale of the virtual economy. But for there to be some native means of, of paying and uh, storing value, transacting in the internet has always seemed to me to make sense. Just typing in your credit card onto random websites, yeah. nev- that was never going to be the standard for long. Well, let me, let me clarify. Suppose there were, Tyler <laughs> or Neil, <laughs> Suppose there were a central ledger, which were deregulated and anonymous, which would be much more efficient. Uh, There would be no demand for crypto. Uh, Crypto is an interesting technology. And I think we never know what something's going to be useful for. But for the moment, it has not innovated one bit on what we understand how to do financially. Mostly, it's getting around regulations at the moment. Um, But if it's an unbacked fiat currency, there is an infinite supply of substitutes. You can always create a new Bitcoin. You can create a a new whatever it is. So unbagged fiat currency with no limit on the supply of substitutes can't last. If it's backed, well, we know then it becomes a money market fund. Well, money market funds are, we need more efficient money market funds. It's a scandal how regulated and inefficient our digital transactions are. Um, But uh, that's, that is a, a perfectly known and understood way of doing things. And crypto isn't the answer for that either because it's more inefficient than a, uh, it's inefficient relative to a backed, uh, a backed central ledger. So uh, I think as- you're, you're both underestimating innovation. So ah. a central ledger is gonna be government or the Fed or a governmental version of the Fed. It will not innovate. Right now I have a checking account. My money in there earns zero. I wanna lend out five to 10% of it to DeFi to pay me at least three or 4%. Using smart contracts, crypto combined with smart contracts can undercut even less regulated banks, I think, as a way of making loans. That's a major innovation growing by leaps and bounds. Mm. Some of it is good regulatory arbitrage. Some of it is bad regulatory arbitrage. Some of it is just getting away of the accretions of bureaucracy and banks. And if you believe in the University of Austin that they can deliver their product at lower cost, my goodness, you ought to think the same about our banking system. And crypto holds out that promise. I think it will be a significant part of finance as soon as it is allowed to be. And yes, some improvements in transactions technology are needed, but I think they're coming in the next five years. What you just said is is very wise, that this is not, uh, here's a totally new thing that crypto can be, a way of decentralizing lending, getting out of the highly regulated banking system, which is why uh, the government is is uh, is very reluctant to let it be deregulated. There's all sorts of, they like to protect the profits of the banking industry. Hey, Tyler, so, so John brought up really the dilemma, right? The dilemma has to do with, with your privacy versus anonymity and the degree to which anonymity can be used to facilitate criminal activity, right? And we've seen this 
you know, this orders of magnitude increase in, in cyber attacks, ransomware attacks that are enabled, right, by cryptocurrency or Web3, whatever we call it, right? And so do, do you have anything in mind, an idea in mind for, for policy and regulation that would allow us to take advantage, right, of, of, the, of this innovation, uh, but at the same time protect against its ability to enable a, a broad range of criminal activity? I think the criminal activity, we will not really succeed in stopping. That may have been the case with or without crypto. But I think the nation or, or city state that brings crypto talent to its borders, that will be significant for determining what is the world's next financial center. So New York has lost out a bit to London. I am hopeful we get some of that back through crypto, not convinced our regulators will allow it. Singapore has taken a very positive attitude. India very negative, China now extremely negative. So uh, there's a question of where will this talent go? Where will the wealth go? Portugal is trying to court crypto wealth by giving people you know, very good tax treatment. So those questions will be settled within the next 10 years, maybe the next two years. So I want our country, the United States, to come out on the right side of that because when America bets with innovation rather than against it, it does do much better so keep in mind, as with everything else, junk bonds, the railroads, the dot-com bubble, right? It's highly volatile for a while. It's a big mess. It doesn't always look like fun. I want yeah. to see us do it. Press the button green. And let, let me say good things, because I, I start out being negative. Um, not all laws are good to enforce. So this crypto is a great way to get money out of China and to get money into uh, Venezuela to evade all sorts of horrible things governments try to do. Tax evasion, um, you know, if crypto facilitates the evasion of our horrendously complex income tax, then maybe that will force the United States to come up with a better tax system. It seems to me that we sometimes uh, have debates at, at cross purposes on these issues. Sometimes people just talk about Bitcoin, not realizing that Bitcoin's no longer crucial, uh, that, that really we've moved into a world of decentralized finance in which Ethereum matters more as something on which you can build smart contracts. Uh, there's also another argument which I think is misleading is that we have a choice between the legacy system that really dates from 1971 and a scary new world of crypto. But, but actually, that's not the choice because that legacy system is clearly in decay. Uh, it's extraordinarily inefficient and it's even less efficient in some uh, Latin American countries than in the US. The incumbents engage in rent seeking. It's especially shocking when you're trying to do remittances across borders. There are lots of problems that need to be solved uh, with the legacy system, but the real alternative to a relatively decentralized system of finance is the Chinese version of central bank digital currency. That's the choice that increasingly we face and as you know, John, there are people at the Bank for International Settlements and eminent economists like Hun Song Shin, who works there, who say we should ban all crypto and have a Chinese style central bank digital currency. I think that's the real choice that we confront. My view is that it would be a disaster if the United States copied a Chinese system that is obviously designed for maximum surveillance. That's its primary purpose. Our approach should be that if citizens are transacting legally, they should not be under surveillance, that surveillance is only really needed if you have reasonable grounds to believe criminal activity is happening. This brings me to my third 
point, the third red herring, we constantly hear about how much criminal activity is going on because of crypto. This is a story that's more than 10 years old. The amount of criminal transactions are, is actually really very low now. Cash is the criminal's friend. People who try to collect uh, ransom money from ransomware attacks in crypto end up getting arrested, as the recent uh, colonial pipeline case illustrates. So I, I, I sometimes feel these debates take place on somewhat confused premises. It's not all about Bitcoin anymore. The real choice is between crypto and central bank digital currency, and the amount of crime going on is really not the issue anymore. If it's crime you're worried about, get rid of banknotes. Also, They're the real cryptocurrency. Also, also privately run <clears throat> digital currencies. Uh, if you could run a money market fund, then you could run a central ledger uh, payment system, which may that's a, an alternative. Uh, I should just note in, in Congress, they're fighting about central bank digital currency right now. And, uh, <clears throat> and the complaint, which comes from the left, is if you allow this, then our banks won't have sources of subsidized financing anymore. Uh, so that will be quite uh, quite part of the uh, part, part of the fight. Tyler, you should be answering this. Sorry. And hey, I just I would just add just a little bit of context and ask Tyler to comment on it. Neil, I, I think your point's well taken, except that you can't make it a choice only between the Chinese system and then and then some sort of, uh, of regulation that yeah. allows you to impede criminal activity because you can't you can't consider those two those two alternatives outside of the context of the governing system and whether or not there's due process of law, for example. So I think, you know, a warrant based system that could get you access uh, to information it, it, when there is criminal activity suspected, you know, that could be associated with all sorts of, of, uh, of criminal activity, not just crypto or not just uh, cyber crime. Uh, I think is, is is really what we need. I don't know what that exactly looks like because well, I'm not a technical expert, but I, I think it, we could make it a false dilemma, I would think. That's easy. A narrow bank, basically, that offers very quick payment systems uh, is backed 100% with reserves of the Fed or something of the sort, but that the government uh, needs a warrant to go look at your buying and selling activity. I worry that a central bank digital currency will pull too much capital away from the private sector. So those people that get access to the new system don't deposit their money in normal retail banks. That's deposited at the Fed or something similar. The Fed then has to make a decision how and where to lend out that money. That's a kind of socialism through the back door. And I'm against it. I disagree. Uh, all the you money- know, You think it's all Medigliani Miller, but I think the liquidity flows matter. That money comes out of, and we, instead of holding treasury bonds directly, we hold them through through as digital currency and let the uh, let the banks issue equity. And then we never have a financial crisis ever again. That seems worth, uh, you know, 10 basis points on your mortgage. I think capital structure matters for banks that deposits are a pretty cheap form of financing. Highly Better. imperfect. I don't like the system as a whole. Better than turning those resources over to our government, in my view. So I heard the word socialism. Tyler, why don't we segue into COP26 and... Simple question, where is this going? What are these people doing? It's an elaborate PR campaign in my view. To be clear, I do favor vigorous action to limit the degree of climate change that is coming. But look, at the same time, the Biden administration is speaking with the Saudis and urging them to keep down the price of oil and to pump more quantity. It's an insane mix of so-called policies. It is absurd, uh, taking us to be idiots and I think what we really need to infer about the equilibrium, the American people, and indeed most electorates, are not willing to do anything about global warming that will cost them very much. So we'll have to come up with technologies that are so cheap and so easy to use 
they're simply adopted voluntarily, that to me is a worse optimum than say a carbon tax plus subsidies for R&D. We'll do the subsidies for R&D. We'll make them highly corporatized rather than being basic science, which is a bad thing, but better than nothing. And then we won't do much of a carbon tax and we'll just have to wait till innovation makes things really cheap. And you know, Tyler, isn't that happening already though, right? So isn't the problem that we keep advancing non-solutions when there are actual real solutions associated, for example, with transition away from coal to, to natural gas as a as a bridge as a bridging alternative, and then how about nuclear power, right? And, and so, so I think that what's happened is these ideologues keep pushing non-solutions that create a false dilemma between either energy security and continuing to to, to fuel, so to speak, economic growth. Uh, and and uh, and destroying the climate. Actually, you could you could have it both ways if we focused on real solutions. I'm very pro nuclear, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. We might have to wait till it gets sufficiently easy to incorporate solar and wind power into the grid and combat all the forces of NIMBY that limit how much wind power we can do. Uh, there's a, a long shot that broader use of geothermal will pan out. Yes, of course, nuclear. But as you well know, the world's moving away from it. I've seen signs of reversing that trend in the last few months, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure we'll get there. The stronger are the NIMBYs, the harder it is for nuclear. Where are you going to put it, right? You could put you've, it got next, you've got next generation technologies, though, too, I think, and which are really you know, just not that far away. I mean, they've been, they, they, you know, the basic science is there. It just needs some, some investment, I think. And then, and then we have, you know, you have nuclear capabilities that, that are, you know, these small plants that are kind of, you know, start them up and forget them for 40 years. They generate waste uh, that, that is far less hazardous with a much short, shorter, you know, half-life than, than, uh, than, you know, contemporary uh, nuclear power plants. So I, you know, I, when, when I look at the technologies, it seems like the, the range of technologies available, right? Not, there's not any one solution to this, but uh, the, the range of, of technologies makes it feasible. I mean, the, the largest you know, the largest reduction in man-made CO2 emissions in, in, in history was in the United States based on the availability of cheap natural gas, right? So, so it shows we the power of market We need forces. to get beyond gas, right? Gas yeah, is improved and not good enough. I think back to when they rebuilt the Tappanzee Bridge across the Hudson River. Now it's called the Cuomo Bridge. It's in a slightly different location. I believe that took them 40 years. And that's a bridge. We know how to build a bridge. We've known for many, many decades. So when I see it take our polities to do multiple levels of environmental review, NIMBYism, too much federalism, too many veto points, too much kludgeocracy, take 40 years to build the bridge, rebuild the bridge. Uh, that's greatly worrying. And I, I wonder which of the numerous solutions we're gonna have we're actually capable of instituting. I don't know. I, I think, think the, key, the key here is that, that, that nuclear is going to be part of the global response, but not the American response. The Chinese are going to build an enormous number of nuclear power plants in the coming decades. They've already begun this process and other countries are going to do it too. It's the only way you get Asia off coal because right now what's driving climate change is actually Asians burning yep. coal. It's not North Americans, it's not Europeans. North Americans have abundant natural gas. Uh, and we just have to recognize that there's no future in which we're reliant entirely on solar and wind. And so the US is going to clearly have its base load from natural gas. Everywhere else, they'll be building nuclear power stations. But I agree with Tyler, we've created a regulatory state, kludgeocracy, that makes it 
pretty much economically impossible to do in the US. Which is another way to put my fear. I'm afraid we'll end up burning more green energy and more non-green energy. So like seven different forms of green energy could work. There's a lot of countries in the world that will lower the prices of oil and coal as demand goes down. And maybe it just all gets burnt. So stopping that is the trick, not getting green energy to work. I'm pretty sure we're going to do that. The central problem of the European strategy of shifting to really heavy reliance on wind and solar is that you end up burning uh, more hydrocarbons to compensate for the variability in the so-called renewable sources. This problem was obvious a long time ago. Actually, if I think back more than 15 years, I looked into this uh, when a power plant, an offshore wind farm was being proposed uh, not far from uh, my place in Wales. And I delved into the research. And even then, it was clear that the countries in Europe that had gone heavily into wind had a serious problem, that they'd actually increased the inefficiency or reduced the efficiency of their existing power generating capacity because of the fluctuations in wind. This is not a new problem, but it's only just gradually, slowly, and painfully dawning on Europeans that their plan to shift entirely or as far as possible to solar and wind isn't viable. And as Tyler said, probably has lots of unintended consequences in terms of increased hydrocarbon consumption or less efficient utilization of hydrocarbon. Hey, I'll just add though too, how about also over-reliance on, on very fragile supply chains that have a point, single point of failure in China, especially associated with the production of, of wind turbines, but especially solar panels and the, the refinement of rare earths uh, rare earths and battery manufacturing, right? So, so this goes back to the regulatory issues that Tyler brought up. I mean, it, that you know, we, we could compete there. We could make supply chains much more resilient, uh, but but our, our our regulations are preventing us from doing that. And so we're about to jump to to forms of energy that will give China uh, you know coercive power over our, our economy. Wait a minute. So solar panels, it doesn't matter if they, if they take six months to get off the boat and get here. Uh, I think one of the crimes actually is our 25% tariffs against solar panels as if Gaia cared where the solar panels were made. I, I'd like to, I think we're missing the policy agenda, which is what's happening in Glasgow right now and what's happening in, in Washington right now. The idea that we're going to shut off fossil fuels uh, in the United States and really do something major with the kleptocratic uh, uh, control system. I think that just evaporated in the Virginia elections and in the uh, Build Back Better debates, uh, we're, we're the, we're, or by executive uh, fiat. Uh, the US just isn't going to shut down fossil fuels and there's limits on the boondoggles of money that we can spread around completely inefficiently. What's going on now is the uh, climate finance. Um, our Treasury Department, our Financial Stability Oversight Committee, uh, they have inaugurated a, quote, whole of government approach. All the financial regulators are on board. This is what's happening in Europe. This is what the Glasgow people are talking about. We're going to, since we can't get any of this stuff through democratically elected legislatures, since presidents who want to get reelected are not going to do it, since the gilets jaunes are going to come out this winter when it gets cold and expensive in Europe, what we're going to do is use financial regulation to strangle the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. Uh, that seems to me the current uh, policy agenda, which is a disaster for financial regulation, uh, as well as all sorts of other things. Can I ask you all a very difficult question in the news now? I think we could start with HR. Ethiopia is collapsing, right? 
Now, if I look at, say, the nation of Ghana, and you ask me to explain why Ghana has done relatively well, I have a story I can tell, but it's a relatively coherent nation state. If you look at DRC, Congo, and you ask me to explain why it hasn't done well, I have a relatively coherent story I can tell you about conflict and ethnic strife. But I look at Ethiopia, and I see over a decade of double-digit growth, which no African nation has ever pulled off, as far as I know. And now I see a fairly sudden collapse, not really predicted, say, by the CIA or even by asset markets. What's our theory of how the collapse came that is consistent with the fact that Ethiopia for a while was doing so well? It's easy to explain either one of those points, but what's the bigger story? I mean, my first thought is that the bigger story has to do a lot with tribalism, something about uh, which uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali has written eloquently about, about how when you know, communities you know, identify uh, in, in a way that pits them against each other, uh, you, you have a conflict. And this is, this is what you see happening in, in, uh, in Tigray. It's a return, obviously, back to the, the fragmentation that occurred in Ethiopia with disastrous consequences during, during the Civil War. And so the- but Why the Delta? They had 10 or you know, maybe a dozen amazing years, and then it all goes to hell. That's counterintuitive to me. I read Ben Friedman on economic growth. It should lower tensions. There's a bigger size of the pie. You can hand out rents to more different groups, and then it all goes to hell. It would seem the prediction was that it would have gone to hell in the first place. Well, you know, we, we've seen this, you know, in, in across many different cases, right, where people who are ostensibly doing well uh, are, you know, become pitted against one another, uh, and 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 with disastrous consequences, right? And, and you see this with the Tigrayans and the and and uh, and the the way that this conflict developed, uh, and it became, you know, it became charged from a a. Uh, you know, a, a nationalistic perspective, you know, from from the you know the Ethiopian government and this president who was supposed to be a real reformer and humanitarian uh, turned out to be quite the opposite. And then then the separatist movement in, in, in Tigray, which uh, which, you know, then became an existential struggle, uh, which you know, led to, to, to is leading to the fragmentation of, of Ethiopia, a country that, as you mentioned, you know, had been experiencing significant economic growth, seemed to be on the on the uh, you know on on the path to to you know, uh, to uh, to stability and, and and enduring security. But Tyler, the whole notion of of Ben Friedman's book, and I've known Ben for many years and greatly admire him, was the somewhat, if I might say so, Cambridge, Massachusetts idea that if you have growth, then of course everybody will get along just fine and uh, and live happily ever after. And that's from a historian's point of view, hilarious idea really i mean yugoslavia you may remember was the most prosperous country uh in the eastern bloc by quite some margin and it had had the most economic liberalization uh, because tito felt no loyalty to the stalinist model uh, but it fell apart uh in in the wake of the collapse of uh, of the soviet empire with astonishing speed and one has to ask the question uh why was that? Because it ought to have been the poorest part of the Soviet bloc, right, where the civil war happened. Uh, it ought to have been the place that had the most uh, had been under the most economic pressure. I remember Paul Collier, who's a terrific economist of Africa, telling me uh, about five years ago that, that that Ethiopia was the great hope uh, for uh, for African growth. And maybe I have just spent too long in East Africa uh, to 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 be that optimistic. Maybe my memories of the mid-1980s are too clear 
but my my sense was that this was always a slightly implausible claim, given the levels of uh, ethnic uh, uh, conflict uh, in uh, Eastern Africa. So my sense is that the, the, the hypothesis was always a wrong one, that if you only had economic growth, then the ethnic conflicts would diminish. Actually, there's, a, there's an alternate theory, isn't there? There's the, the revolution of rising expectations problem. And there's also the argument that as prosperity uh, uh, rises, as economic growth occurs, then the stakes get higher and control of government becomes a more valuable thing uh, than it previously was. So I think that the real issue here is that, that one shouldn't approach economics with too naive a view about its political consequences. It's not, that's not the way the world works. So I want to phrase this as a question. When do people choose uh, tribalism? This certainly struck out at me when, when Yugoslavia fell apart. They, they were almost there. They had pretty much forgotten that they had ethnic uh, problems. And then the central government fell apart and people decided, people, people who wanted power decided that an organizing theory of the nation state, an organizing theory of communist versus capitalist ideology, an organizing theory of other things didn't work. We were gonna go back to refight the battle of Kosovo in 1472. We're gonna, we, they, they rekindled tribalism out of nothing because that proved to be an effective way of organizing a civil war. So. Um, when do people choose tribalism versus other things? It must be the falling apart of the central government or uh, capturing the central government being more uh, valuable and another way of organizing people into my group isn't working. Tyler, I want to hear what you think about this, you know, and, and what, is the role of what is the role of individuals, you know, like, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Abiy Ahmed, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the prime minister of Ethiopia, is he like Milosevic? And what role do these sort of, you know, these, these uh, characters and individuals play in this? Maybe because we're both economists, but I suspect my view is closest to John's. So my Bayesian updating from the Ethiopia events is to assign a greater role of, to contingency and to downgrade the relevance of structure. So one response is to say, well, the structures in Ethiopia, they've been rotten for a long time. So this was inevitable. I'm more inclined to think they had some very bad luck a number of breaks went the wrong way. It might have continued and uh, may depend on individuals, uh, may just depend upon a few bad choices that you know, Abi made. So it makes me think that models in general as a way of explaining history are, are modestly less useful than I thought, say, five months ago. And let me ask a question to the group. Here we have post-Afghanistan, a question of America's role in the world. And what do we do in this humanitarian crisis? Do you think we get deeply involved in Ethiopia? And do you think this becomes Joe Biden's Rwanda crisis, if you will? Bill Clinton leaving the presidency and famously saying we could have, would have, should have with regard to Rwanda. Is this, is this a historical parallel? I think the Rwanda crisis is happening in Haiti, where mm -hmm. there has truly been a breakdown <laughs> in virtually all order. Mm -hmm. uh, the odd thing about Ethiopia is the Tigrayan forces, they are you know, entirely capable of being our allies as they have been historically like the status quo government. So in geopolitical terms, we're not upset per se if they end up taking over. It's just the transition is very ugly and messy. I don't know what we can do in Ethiopia or, or, or should do or will do. I suspect we don't have many options, period, much less good options. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. But others here know more about this than I do. 
Hey, well, you know, of course, I think that we we do have the ability to maybe broker some kind of a ceasefire and some kind of a, a settlement if we if we're determined to back it up, right? And I'd be say we, the United States, and and like minded partners. And so, you know, this this is you know this idea that you can just accomplish tasks diplomatically only. You, you need the shadow of power, you know, and and, and you know at least implicit uh, threats of the use of force to to stop the carnage that is going to only expand, I think, in, in, in Ethiopia. And, and of course, we know that we're not going to be able to solve Ethiopia's pro- problems, but we might be able to help the Tigrayans and, and the government come to some sort of a settlement. And we ought to be very active in doing that. I, I want to challenge on this one, the triumph of hope over experience. Uh, I would love to help Ethiopia. We really ought to be helping Haiti and many other places where there isn't a war going on, but tremendous suffering. But boy, oh boy, over the last 20 or 30 years, the, the um, success rate of the US doing anything positive uh, wandering around the globe. Uh, we're great at winning wars, but boy, are we a disaster the minute the war is over. And that's a let's challenge. Not, let's not forget, John, that we, we started earlier talking about Yugoslavia. It took US intervention to end a very bloody war uh, in the former Yugoslavia. And we've kind of forgotten that that succeeded. Yes, the place is uh, is living in perfect harmony, but there isn't much violence there. It's a at least a frozen conflict. But another way of thinking about this is that we're in a period, and it's going to continue of uh, of a cascade or avalanche of of problems. Some of them following from the disaster of the pandemic. Uh, and the economic shock that it caused, and some of them with local idiosyncratic causes in the case of, say, Haiti. And there are other countries in in a state of total collapse that we haven't mentioned, Lebanon, for example. Uh, We don't talk nearly enough about Venezuela, which is pretty close uh, in this uh, neck of the woods. Uh, I, I think we'll see more state failures in the next few years because of the shock that was dealt the global economy last year. And there's certainly no way that the United States or anybody else is going to be able to go out and sort all these uh, places out. The trouble is that I think the shock of last year and, and into this year was such that a lot of weaker states really can't actually cope with it. The question for me is not, you know, what's going to happen in Lebanon? It's already happened. Afghanistan, it's already happening. The question is, which of the countries teetering on the brink that we've not been paying attention to that will soon join the basket case category? Nigeria. I agree with that, that there'll be many more failed states, but I think it predates the pandemic. I think there's a redistribution of revenue to gangs. You see it in Lebanon, you see it in Mm. Haiti. the pandemic may have accelerated the trend, but it was going to happen anyway. If you think Ethiopia, that's 110 million people. Nigeria, what, over 200 million. Uh, Haiti, you know, central to the Caribbean. Lebanon, Venezuela, they're significant countries. Once it happens to six or seven, Syria, I think one has to be prepared for the notion it will happen to another 10 or 15. The grand pattern you see is is states failing uh, and gangs, criminal gangs, armed gangs, ethnic group gangs, warlords basically taking over is the pattern you're you're seeing. At least in parts of the world with weak state capacity. I'm not predicting it for Denmark. Well, the decline of state capacity. How general are the mechanisms, right? And and terrorists, I would add to that list, John. And, you know, how about Pakistan, right? I mean, if you look at the size of that population, Nuclear armed country. I mean, that's that's not a pretty picture. And then, and then, Tyler, what 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 are your what are your areas of concern in this hemisphere? Right, we look at the disaster in the 
Golden Triangle countries is leading to the the migration and you know crisis at, at our border. You have a shift toward kind of a, a nutty uh, government and the leader in Peru. You have Colombia coming up on an election that, that may that may deliver a result that leads in that direction. You have Mexico with uh, with AMLO's policies that I think are designed to uh, to, to tank Mexico's economy uh, and to create a security crisis there with the hugs not bullet approach to cartels. I mean, it's not a pretty picture in our own hemisphere. What's your prognosis? And what what should we be? You know, what should we be concerned about? You know, one quarter of Mexico is estimated to be ruled by drug gangs right now. And they're one of the more successful states in the new world. Once you get past northernmost parts of North America, I don't know what we should do, but I think we have to entertain the hypothesis. And this gets back to our initial crypto discussion. The institutions we had had of many sorts and including in the better run countries are now obsolete and out of date. And they're being picked apart in different ways. And you will have numerous polities that figure out how to rebuild them on the fly without chaos setting in. That's not something we should take for granted. And it seems to me there's a confluence of information technology, drug gang revenue, terrorist revenue, greater ability to do some things anonymously with global reach, communications changing, people around the world having lower levels of trust in their centralized governments. And you, you stir that brew together. I don't think we've really thought through or emotionally internalized how volatile that could be. Yeah. Well, and, I think and add and add like the democratization of destruction, right? How these groups now are get are able to get their hands on destructive capabilities previously associated only with nation states. Not to be right? hyper alarmist, but but I think with, with the argument I'd make, Tyler, and to, for you know, I think we might all agree on this is that we're not going to solve any of these problems. But if we disengage from them, we will only be able to deal with the consequences at, at an exorbitant price, you know, once these threats reach our own shores. The picture you're, you're painting is one of the United States and the international institutions which it led, which formed the framework uh, around which the world works, slowly falling apart and, and tying together our conversation. Imagine you're, you're flying in from the US to one of these countries and, and there's drug gangs and all the rest of it. And rather than talking about let's legalize drugs or something, since let's buy what you have to sell, they get a lecture on climate change. Uh, <laughs> and let's add to that, the United States can make no promise that lasts more than four years because we know in exactly four years, everything promised now will be overturned. The question is, which dystopia are we steering towards? This is one of the things that made me want to write the book Doom. And when I was thinking about that book pre-pandemic, a book that influenced me a lot was Neil Stevenson's science fiction uh, book, Snow Crash. Uh, now, Snow Crash is very timely because it imagines a world, mainly California, but it's it's the world as a whole in which the, the real world has sort of disintegrated. It's a, it's a mess. Uh, and great convoys or armadas of migrants are heading uh, towards the United States from even more dysfunctional parts of the world. But how do people deal with this? Well, they jump into the metaverse uh, and uh, get on their virtual reality goggles and, and enter a, a more pleasant uh, online environment where their avatars have a nice time. Uh, and as you were talking, uh, Tyler, and we were thinking about this this problem, I was uh, I was reminded of a very exciting moment uh, in my week when I got to meet Neil Stevenson virtually through the 
joys of Zoom at a meeting of the Santa Fe Institute, where they think about these uh, issues of complex systems teetering over into chaos. There's even a paper on conflict avalanches, which perfectly describes what we're, we're talking about with respect to Africa. But, but there was Stevenson, the author of Snow Crash, and his vision is being realized by Mark Zuckerberg this very year with the announcement that Meta, as we now have to call Facebook, is going to make the metaverse where we go for fun, because, well, the real world's such a mess. Is, 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 I mean, Tyler, is, is this just Neil Stevenson's world? Is this the snow crash world and we're in it? In my view, the metaverse already exists. We are in it right now. We are having fun in it, although we're talking about doom and destruction. But it's a better conversation than we would be having in our immediate meat spaces surrounding us. So I take very seriously that the world is here key question for me is how do we conceptually delineate the structures that can make the transition to the new world, say possibly Denmark, Singapore, and the structures that cannot. So we all feel intuitively there's some dividing line, but what exactly in terms of a, you know, a very basic social science model accounts for that difference? I don't think we know yet. That's what is I that, think about every day. Why do, you this, puzzle. why do you say dividing line? This, uh, if this works, this seems like one of the cheapest technologies to deliver around the world there ever has been. If you think that some countries will collapse, as, as we're seeing right now, Venezuela, Haiti, Lebanon, right, Syria, uh, more than seemed to be the case 10 years ago, you might think, well, every country will collapse. Uh, I doubt if that's true. And if it is true, there's not much we can do. If some countries will collapse and others won't, what's the difference in terms of a public choice model that draws the line? You know, if Colombia doesn't collapse, why is that different from, say, maybe Peru, which does collapse? Model it, right? That's my question. Well, the point, the point of complexity theory is that it's, it proves that it's not possible to predict. <laughs> possible. It may be like what I said about Ethiopia. But as an economist, I can't resist the urge to put this in more general terms, and if need be, die trying. But Tyler, yeah. metaverse good or bad? What's your uh, wave of the future or? Uh... Wave of the present. You know, I hope Facebook contributes more to the metaverse, the company formerly known as Facebook. I'm all for that. Uh, but again, I think we're living in it more than we already realized. I loved uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez's uh, quip. Your attitude toward the metaverse is largely a function of how good your reality is. And I thought how very true, because I instinctively dislike the metaverse. I'm against it. I try to keep my children out of it. Uh, if I have a choice, it's obviously to go for a a walk in the park rather than to don virtual reality goggles and simulate the park. But that's because my reality is pretty nice. I live in Northern California. I'm not poor. Uh, if I was in Venezuela uh, uh, or Lebanon, that those virtual reality goggles would be pretty appealing. So I think this is a, a, a puzzle for me. Does the metaverse become a little bit like cryptocurrency, more attractive, uh, the more screwed up your country is? And does that actually intensify the problem? Because after all, if you've checked out of reality for 50% of the time with the goggles on, presumably things don't write themselves in your, in your country. Tyler, how do you think about that point? I observe that a lot of highly educated, wealthy people have the most fun in the metaverse. Uh, perhaps you being one of them, you're on this call, right? So I'm I not sure the effects cut the way you're suggesting. I take Tyler's point, which I, I think this is very useful. Are you and me, Neil, immediately think of it like a beta 2006 video game 
uh, which is well, about a 2006 video game. Tyler's pointing out, you know, the, the thing we're on here, Zoom, is kind of like cobbled together at the last minute and, and thank goodness it worked. Uh, but I'm hearing lots of sort of enhanced Zoom kind of things. Now this is a tool that becomes a tool that can be used to do all sorts of other unimagined things as opposed to just, uh, you know, a, a new version of Second Life with, uh, right. with virtual reality goggles. That's much that opens the gates to, I don't know what we're gonna use this for, but it might, might be interesting. For all of us, the most interesting people to talk to are scattered around the world, right? For poorer people, say in Venezuela, often the most interesting people for them to talk to are their family and neighborhood right nearby. And that's why I think the effect could cut the other way. But it's the well-educated people obsessing over the metaverse. Right. Hey, Tyler, do you think if there is an element of this where people, if they're dissatisfied, right, are looking for an escape, you wrote a, a great essay about why, you know, why Americans seem to be so angry and, 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 and uh, upset at one another. You know, and one of the things that has concerned me lately is this lack of sense of agency, right? This idea that every problem we face that is insurmountable because it's institutional or it's structural. I mean, what's your diagnosis for our own society? I mean, what, what, why do you, what do you see as the sources of these anger, this anger that you point out in the essay? And then what can, what can all of us do about it? What agency do we have? I think we've taught people to be snowflakes to some extent. Uh, we need a cultural shift. I'm actually hopeful that the, you know, what's sometimes called Generation Z, much younger people uh, are making that shift already. I'm not a pessimist on that question for the United States, but what I see is a culture of blame and entitlement and a certain kind of complacency and sloth leading over into a kind of mild resentment, not resulting in cathartic brick throwing, but rather, you know, whiny tweets. I do think we'll grow out of it, but it's quite bad. It's easy enough to find out there in today's metaverse. I'm glad HR mentioned this. Wait, wait. This is your column. This is column National Mood Disorder, right, Tyler? Yes, it's one way to label it. So I found an article on you, the Atlantic Order profiling you about a decade ago, and you described yourself as a happiness optimist, revenue pessimist. Yes. Has that changed in the last decade? I think the last decade has been less happy than I expected it to be. Uh, my long-run optimism, I don't think, has changed about happiness. If the United States has more talent than ever before, the world as a whole has more talent. And if you view wealth as mainly about human talent, in spite of the uh, growing messes, I think one can be optimistic. Talent has to be able to match with the opportunities and the opportunities have to be allowed to escape and get out there and do things. Mm -hmm. But the metaverse is in a way unregulated, right? But there's so many ways we can connect now, build new Web3 companies and so on, that will be very dynamic. Biomedical science seems to be more dynamic than it's been at any time in my life. So those are two big areas where we can be optimistic. Right, but Tyler, you're also telling us that the future will be weirder than we think. Uh, correct. So I think the internet makes us weird, not always in good ways, not always in bad ways. You cluster with people that where you have something in common. Uh, there's less of a single shared narrative. We're not all watching three network channels or going to church on Sunday. Uh, I think it makes us more creative. People underrate how new the real internet is. You could say like the actual internet started in 2013. Truly obsessive behavior on the internet, that everything's on the internet is quite recent. We think of the internet as something like 20 to 30 years old, but that's misleading in terms of social impact. You know, where 
we're up, you know, late Monday afternoon and the week is just getting started. So you mentioned progress and new ideas and where we're going. And I wanna ask you about this. Um, every economist says, oh yes, the government should subsidize basic research. Our, our climate thing, uh, we, we, we said, oh, demonstration projects, no, but basic research yet. yet. Yet you know a tremendous amount now, you've run this amazing fast grants program and you've learned about how science funding works. As one little anecdote, I just heard from a colleague whose uh, who's grant application in Canada was turned down because his diversity statement was uh, insufficient before they even did any scientific evaluation. Uh, but I use, what I learned from you is that there is a lot of uh, real dysfunction in how our science, our basic science uh, funding and, and processes work. And you sort of know how to fix it. That seems like an important impediment to, for example, are we gonna have this uh, great biological revolution or is, is it gonna be uh, uh, regulated out of existence? Anyway, tell us about science funding and, and how we can run basic science better. Institutions decay. And that's true of our science funding agencies. So it's stunning to me, even in the middle of a pandemic, it already has killed at least 700,000 Americans, more than that, actually. Getting uh, your grant proposal refereed could still take five to nine months. Just unbelievable. Now, there were some accelerated grants. Most of the processes were remarkably cumbersome and slow, and you had to you know, use the right font in your application and submit the PDF in the right way. And Fast Grants was a project I set up at Mercatus, uh, working with Patrick Collison of Stripe, and the goal there was we would take in money quickly and get people serious answers on their proposals within a few days. And we managed to allocate uh, over $50 million this way and came up with a number of notable successes like spit test from Yale. Uh, we were the funders there. They couldn't get money from Yale. Yale's a rich school. Yale was too bureaucratic. We literally sent the money in days. Uh, fluvoxamine as an antiviral, it seems to lower hospitalization 30%, it's super cheap, you know, no cold chain problem. Uh, the people who wanted to run those clinical trials couldn't get the money from anywhere. We sent them really a lot of money just on a few days notice. It seems that fluvoxamine works. So I think much more of our philanthropy, biomedical and otherwise, could be done on a super stripped down, very small number of evaluators, very low overhead, be willing to put up with some, you know, bad allocation decisions, get the better stuff done more rapidly. And if you poll scientists and you ask them, like, how much of your time do you spend just applying for grants? Top scientists can be a third or more of their time. It's common. It's the norm. There's something wrong in that picture. And we tried to fix it. Well, one reason that I'm more of a pessimist uh, than an optimist, Tyler, is that I sense that all those uh, good forms of energy you're talking about uh, are on the whole frustrated by uh, the ever larger, uh, ever slower moving regulatory state. And uh, if state collapses the future for some proportion of the poorer countries of the world, what we face is something different, which is a kind of suffocation by the regulatory administrative state. And the metaverse, if that's what we're now going to call the internet, God help us, let's just call it the internet, shall we? I mean, the internet just empowers the forces of darkness to a degree that I find depressing. Uh, any innovation is met with a sustained barrage uh, of negativity, uh, which the algorithms seem brilliantly designed to, to promote. 
So I wonder if if all that good energy that you and Patrick Collison are able to unleash is ultimately going to be overwhelmed by this terrible combination of the mid-20th century hypertrophic bureaucratic state and all the haters empowered by the internet. You know, human history, at least in the West, not only in the West, has been fighting a battle against negativity and winning at least since the 18th century. And I would argue for, for longer yet maybe since late medieval times. I just don't see that the current forces of negativity are so strong that they will overturn that. And if you look at University of Austin, I genuinely have no idea how it will do, right? I'm an outsider. If it fails, it won't be because too many people whined about it on Twitter. Like it will happen, it will have its chance, it will be up to students and faculty. And I think we'll overcome that. And it's slings and arrows, like it, it hurts us see the negativity and the whining. Uh, it may be a useful way to drain off the energies of otherwise more destructive people. Maybe it's a kind of blessing in disguise, say certain segments of the left, they're trapped in academia, they're trapped on Twitter, trapped in a few other places. Keep them busy. So you know, let it roll. Let's close the show by going around the horn and talking about the University of Austin. And Neil, why don't you kick it off? Uh, I'm very curious about the pushback you received since this has been announced. Actually, I'm not interested in the pushback at all, because as Tyler says, uh, it's just noise. I mean, ultimately, a venture like this uh, dispels all the snark if it's successful, if it works. When you start anything up, uh, we're trying to start a new university for those uh, not following the story in Austin, Texas, uh, a university fundamentally committed to academic freedom, fundamentally committed to the pursuit of truth. Uh, this is always difficult to do because startups in academia, more than startups in other fields, attract extraordinary vituperative hostility from the incumbents because the incumbents in academia know that their product is quite defective. And they meet, they must fear something that is going to be cheaper, uh, freer, more intellectually challenging, and just more fun than the stultified atmosphere that you encounter on most American campuses today. Whereas we know enormous proportions, look at the heterodox academy surveys of students, daren't speak their minds for fear of being canceled. And where professors seem to live in a, a, a state of fear from totalitarianism light. Uh, my view is that if you create something like this, there will be a barrage of snark on Twitter from the frustrated incumbents, and you should totally ignore it. I don't look at it, actually. I couldn't care less. I'm much more interested in making the thing work. And that, as in, is true of all startups, is, is, is going to be about good initial product design, understanding the market that we're trying to serve and, and delivering on our, our, our objectives and key results. It's just simple startup stuff. And unlike most academics, I've actually started things before and some of them have worked and some of them have not, but the ones that have worked well have worked very well. So I'm on this, I'm an optimist in, in the face even- On, of, your, on the things you know most about, you're an optimist, right? That's yeah. the key point here. Let's yes, go, let's go to this. I agree with you entirely. And by the way, I should say that Tyler has kindly agreed to be one of our advisors. And an advisor, of course, is somebody who can tell us what we're doing wrong. And as in any startup, we're bound to make mistakes at first. And we need people with Tyler's wisdom to put us right. Let's hear from the in-house optimist. HR, what do you think of this? Hey, I think it's, it's the great strength of America, right, is that we can innovate and we can overcome challenges and take advantage of opportunities. And I, and I think that you know, the America's entrepreneurial spirit applied to education will reap tremendous benefits. And, 
And uh, of course, you know, Neil's familiar with this record. You know, the, the, the university has reinvented itself several times in our history. Uh, and it has come after a sense that we need something different in higher education to be able to, to build a better world for, for generations to come. And I think we're at this moment again. I applaud the effort. And, and, uh, and I think it's just another example of, of how we can overcome many of the challenges that we talked about today. Well, I think this is a great thing because I'm an economist and uh, competition is the salve of, of all wounds. Uh, when institutions get old and, and, and dysfunctional, build new institutions, but you have to have the right to build those new institutions. And I, that's where I wish you luck. I, I don't worry about the Twitter mob going after you, but I worry about all the things that have created such an uncompetitive market in higher education. Will the accreditation boards uh, let you through? Those are uh, fairly well taken over by the left-wing mobs. Will you? Uh, <clears throat> will the federal government uh, kick you out of uh, the financial system as they have tried to do to the for-profit university? Uh, will they so subsidize your opponents uh, with uh, free student loans, free tuition, but find a way to not give it to you that you'll have trouble breaking in? I think you'll make it. I think there is enough left of the right to start a new business and compete even in academia. But uh, I think uh, you know the standard government protection of incumbents is what you're gonna be up against. Tyler, I'll give you the last word. I'm also curious as to what you do for Thanksgiving. What's on the table? Texas barbecue ordered from Lockhart, which is Hill Country, Texas. I would just say on University of Austin, I do not have an insider perspective, but two questions I would be focused on is, is there enough talent to staff the thing without it turning into all the other places? And then is there a sufficiently innovative business model that will work in a world where there may be somewhat of a student shortage? Uh, but I will be watching keenly and uh, will be happy to report on developments. Okay, so gentlemen, let's leave it there. I think we're gonna come back and revisit University of Austin at some point. And I wanna get a field report on uh, how Tyler spent his Thanksgiving with this barbecue. That is, that is thinking outside the box, my friend. I ordered it through the metaverse. <laughs> You know, the metaverse can do great things. <laughs> so that's it for this episode. The metaverse of you're talking about, not the metaverse. The metaverse. <laughs> or the Ediverse, if you will. All right. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellas. But fair not, we'll be back soon with a new conversation. It'll be after Thanksgiving. So we'll give you a wrap up on everyone's uh, weekend, their holiday. On behalf of my Hoover colleagues, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, John Cochran, our very special guest today, Tyler Cowan. We wish you and yours the very best. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.